You know who you're dealing with, motherfucker. I'll show up at your house in the middle of the night. In a strangely comedic vehicle that I have inexplicably acquired. Just when you least expect it, I'll pop out of a giant fucking birthday cake. We will become true masters of buffoonery. We'll worry about that later. Bruised, broken, beat down, we still got a lot of wrestling left. Welcome to another mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, covering New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and tonight I'll be talking about every single A and B block match that took place during nights 11 and 12 of the G1 Climax Tour. If you've missed any of my previous episodes covering absolutely everything you need to know about this year's G1 Climax, head over to cnjradio.com and click on the link for the Wrestling House Show. I've talked about 50 tournament matches already, I'm talking about 10 more tonight, and I'll still have 30 more to go after this mini-sode is complete. That's a lot of wrestling, so let's get right into it. Night 11 of the G1 Climax 29 took place on July 30th, 2019 at 7pm Japanese Standard Time. The venue for Night 11 was the Takamatsu City General Gymnasium in Takamatsu, Kagawa, Japan. The first A-block match during Night 11 could have been a huge spoiler for one man. It was Kota Ibushi who went into the match in a three-way tie for third in the block with six points, versus one of the only two men eliminated from A Block already, Bad Luck Fale. If you watched the show, you would have heard Kevin Kelly say that this match was an elimination match for Fale, but I think that was incorrect. As I talked about on the last minisode, Fale was eliminated because at best he could only tie Okada at this point, and Okada has already beaten Fale for a tiebreaker. Kevin Kelly listed Tanahashi as one of the men who'd beaten Fale already, but that was not correct. He should have said Okada. So anyway, I just wanted to clear up any confusion for those of you who might have watched Night 11 on NJPWWorld.com. So yeah, the only thing Fale could have really done here was to make things more difficult for Ibushi. Ibushi needed a win over Fale to tie Kenta for second place in the block with 8 points, and really Ibushi needs as many wins as he can get right now. He also has to hope that Kenta and Okada slow down a bit as they race towards the end of the G1. Abushi also needed to end this match with Fale as quickly as possible so he could rest his injured ankle as much as he possibly could. Fale seemed to be the one in a hurry though. Fale tossed Abushi out to the floor as soon as the match started, and Fale distracted the referee as Jado and Chase Owens did some damage at ringside. Fale then attacked Abushi and covered him with a barricade before heading back into the ring. Fale was looking for a quick countout victory, but Abushi was able to get back into the ring right before 20. The rest of this match was pretty much a 3 on 1, but it wasn't quite as an overwhelming handicap match as what Bullet Club did to Will Ospreay a few nights prior. I guess Fale sort of learned his lesson from that DQ loss, or at least he was slightly more careful to hide the worst of his cheating in his match with Ibushi. Fale slowly moved around the ring as he switched back and forth from attacking Ibushi to distracting the referee so Owens and Jado could attack Ibushi. As the match went on though, Ibushi was able to start putting together some combinations of strikes. Ibushi's offense is mostly quick and powerful, so we didn't need a lot of time to do some serious damage to Fale. After a series of strikes punctuated by a Bomaye and the Kamigoye, Ibushi pinned Fale and got the two points he needed to stay competitive in the block. I like this match pretty well. There wasn't a lot of super great action, but it did scare me a few times towards the end of the match. 
At one point, Giotto hit Abushi with his kendo stick, and Fale immediately hit his hand grenade finisher, and I thought that might be the end. It wasn't though, and that did make the win for Abushi pretty satisfying. Match 2 on Night 11 was one that I'd been looking forward to since the blocks were announced. It was Zack Sabre Jr. versus Will Ospreay, and this was a match more about pride and skill than anything else. Sabre had nothing to lose and only pride to gain since he had already been mathematically eliminated from the tournament after his loss and Okada's win in the previous round, but Osprey's hopes were still barely alive heading into this match. Osprey needed a win to stay alive, but Sabre was like a shark tonight, and the blood in the water was Osprey's heavily taped neck and shoulder. The match started with Sabre and Osprey trading some holds and counter after counter in some great technical exchanges that amounted to pretty much a standoff. That went on for a little while as both men tried to look for an opening, and Osprey was the first to open things up by creating some distance and turning up his speed. Osprey thrived in this match when he was able to stay away from Sabre and use his speed, agility, and kicks. But Osprey's opening salvo was cut short when he tried to take Sabre down with a cravat. Sabre countered with a cravat of his own, and after a few more counters, Sabre ended the exchange with a vicious neck twist as Osprey was down on the mat. That set the stage for Sabre's absolute focus on Osprey's neck. Things started to go a little back and forth around the middle portion of the match, and really there are kind of too many big and little things that I absolutely loved about what Osprey and Sabre were doing for me to mention them all. Osprey was starting to do some counters that I've seen Sabre do before, but Sabre would often counter those counters into something else, and would almost always focus on inflicting more pain on Osprey's neck. At one point late in the match, Osprey hit the Oz cutter, but the pain in his neck was so bad that he delayed going for the cover, and Sabre kicked out. Osprey started going for more and more dives and kicks, but Sabre countered more than Osprey landed. The finish of the match was beautiful. Osprey had been looking for Stormbreaker off and on, but Sabre had quickly escaped each time. With momentum on his side after a few huge moves, Osprey went for Stormbreaker again, but as Sabre came down, he leapt sideways directly into a Royal Octopus hold. Osprey broke his arm free and reached for the ropes, but Sabre grabbed Osprey's arm and somehow pulled his own leg over Osprey's arm while still in the octopus. Osprey was twisted pretty much in half, and he had no choice but to crumple to the mat, where Sabre grabbed Osprey's head and pulled up with both hands. Osprey immediately tapped, giving Sabre his second win in this year's G1. And if it's not clear already, I loved this match. This is definitely going to be in my top 10 for the tournament. I think Sabre and Osprey are both great, and clearly they are great together. They have crossed paths before, and their familiarity with each other, and probably their competitive nature with each other, helped make this a memorable match. In the context of the G1, it did mean that Osprey was eliminated with this loss, but I think even without context, any wrestling fan would just enjoy the action for what it was. It was great. The third match on Night 11 was another great match. It was also an elimination match for one man. It was the IWGP heavyweight champion Kazuchika Okada, who was still undefeated in this year's G1 with 5 wins and 10 points, versus one of the biggest and best surprises of the tournament, Lance Archer. Archer has been impressive throughout the entire G1, and he continued to look great while busting out some new moves in this match against Okada. Archer's point total doesn't really represent how good he's been though, because Archer went into this match with only 4 points. A loss to Okada meant that he would be out of the tournament. Perhaps that was on Archer's mind, because he attacked Okada before Okada could even take off any of his ring entrance gear. 
Red Shoes Uno started the match while Archer was still hitting Okada with shoulder blocks in the corner, and right off the bat, Okada was starting at the bottom of a huge uphill battle. Archer took the fight to the floor, where he hit a gigantic running front flip senton from the apron to the floor, and Archer would continue to terrorize anyone who got within his field of vision. That included elbowing every young lion he could reach, and it also meant yelling at a little boy at ringside. The little kid looked terrified as Archer approached him, and the boy had left his seat and was reeling back like sideways over his mom's lap, and I think Archer was yelling something about it being the kid's fault that Okada was getting beat up. I laughed, but I felt a little bad for laughing at the same time. Thankfully, Red Shoes Uno intervened and blocked Archer's vision of the kid, so Archer turned back to Okada and headed back into the ring. Inside the ring, Archer walked the ropes like he's been doing in most of the tournament matches. This time, though, Archer descended from the ropes with a springboard moonsault from the top rope onto a standing Okada. It was crazy. After surviving to that point, Okada started to hit some strikes here and there. He started with a few drop kicks, and then he built up to some lariats. That was pretty much how the rest of the match played out. Archer would hit big moves and started looking for the EBD claw, while Okada added more strikes when he could. The strikes started to slow Archer down, and finally after Okada blocked an attempt at the EBD claw, Okada hit the Rainmaker for the victory. I think this was a great match. Archer is super fun to watch, partly because you don't know what crazy flying move he's going to do next, but also because he knows exactly how to use his size in a great way. He's mean and vicious, and he punishes people, but when people do start to fight back, it's completely believable. Unfortunately, this loss to Okada knocked Archer out of this year's G1, but I think his performance in every match is going to propel him to greater status when the tournament is over. The next to last match of the night wasn't my favorite match of the tournament for either man, but it turned out to be an extremely important match in the standings. It was Sonata versus Kenta, and despite Kenta's loss to Okada in round 5, it still felt like Kenta was on a roll. Plus, Sonata has been great all tournament long, but he hasn't been able to pile up too many points. In fact, with Okada's win earlier during Night 11, Sonata had already been mathematically knocked out of the tournament. Okada's win also meant things could get desperate for Kenta if he were to lose to Sonata. So for Kenta, this match meant keeping within two points of the block leader, but for Sonata, this was about pride and the prestige of getting a win over one of the hottest guys in the G1. The match started with Kenta attacking Sonata from behind as Sonata looked out to the crowd. The fan support for Sonata has been very good throughout the G1, so Kenta's attack was a good way to get people to boo him even more. Kenta mostly dominated the first half of the match with lots of strikes, but Kenta was able to get in a few bursts of offense when he used his speed and agility. Kenta was more methodical, so Sonata's speed was his biggest asset. Sonata really started to put together a good attack late in the match. Sonata hit a TKO and soon after put Kenta in his skull-end dragon sleeper for the first time. Kenta escaped and picked up the intensity of his own attacks, but Sonata turned Kenta's go-to-sleep into another skull-end, and when it looked like Kenta was all but passed out, Sonata connected with a moonsault and got his second victory in the G1. In the first half of the match, I really felt like Sonata was having an off night. He seemed slow and he wasn't putting up a great fight against Kenta. Maybe that's just because Kenta was preventing Sonata from doing anything, but I think the combination of a slow start from Sonata and being conditioned to expect Okada to lose in this year's G1 had me starting to get disappointed before the match was even halfway over. The pace did pick up, and even though they both had more explosive and exciting matches, this was a solid fight with a very surprising finish. Seeing Sonata beat Kenta did get me excited and turned around a lot of my prior disappointment. Sonata still can't win the block, 
but beating Kenta is a big deal since the only other man to do that so far has been the IWGP heavyweight champion. Kenta is now in real danger. He's going to have to win all three of his final matches or get two wins and a draw and hope that Okada loses all three of his. That's the only chance Kenta has to win A Block after this tough loss to Sonata. And the final A Block match during Night 11 of the G1 Climax 29 was a big match for both men. It was Evil versus Hiroshi Tanahashi, and both men went into the match with 6 points. Evil hasn't faced Okada in the tournament yet, so a loss for Evil did not mean elimination, but it meant needing a perfect final 3 matches and 3 losses from the unbeaten Okada. Tanahashi had fought and lost to Okada during Night 1 in Dallas, so if Tanahashi also lost to Evil, then his tournament would be over. Tanahashi's outward appearance gave no indication that he was feeling any pressure in this match, but to me, his actions towards the end of the match, where he risked putting himself out of the entire tournament by further injuring his own knee, really showed that he was fully aware of his dire situation. Tanahashi's knee has been a recurring problem over the last few matches, but he started this match without showing any pain. Tanahashi was running and hitting Evil with some quick offense. Evil showed up to this match to win though, and he pushed Tanahashi to take bigger and bigger risks as the match went on. The first really big risk that Tanahashi took was about halfway through the match. Evil was at ringside, and Tanahashi climbed up to the top turnbuckle and hit a high fly flow crossbody from the top all the way down to the floor. Tanahashi took Evil down and put momentum firmly on his side, but he also smashed his knee into the ground. From that point on, Tanahashi had more and more trouble holding on to any sustained control of the match. Back in the ring, Tanahashi slowed himself down and started going for Evil's legs. Tanahashi set up what looked like was an attempt at an Indian deathlock, but Evil escaped and soon put Tanahashi into a figure four. Evil focused on Tanahashi's increasingly problematic knee, but Tanahashi kept finding ways to pull Evil away from his plan of attack. Tanahashi and Evil traded some really hard strikes for a while, and that put Evil back into the lead. Evil strung together some good offense, but he couldn't put Tanahashi away. In the end, Tanahashi kept looking for the high fly flow and finally hit a couple of different versions to get the pinfall victory over Evil. With that win, Tanahashi remains competitive, though like Kenta, he's going to need at least 5 more points than Okada in the last 3 matches if he wants to win. Evil is still alive as well, but he needs all 6 of his next possible 6 points to have a hope of winning. As for this match, I did like it quite a lot. I think it had the best build up from bell to bell of any match during Night 11. The crowd consistently got louder and louder as the match went on, and the final few minutes were a lot of fun. After Night 11, everyone got one day to recover as they traveled west to Fukuoka. Night 12 of the G1 Climax 29 took place at the Fukuoka City Civic Gymnasium in Hakata, Fukuoka, Japan, at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. Night 12 was a B-Block night, and even though no one had yet been eliminated from B-Block, the first tournament match of the night was an elimination match for both men. It was Shingo Takagi versus Jeff Cobb, and both men were in a 7-way tie at the bottom of the block with 4 points. Since both men had already lost to block leader John Moxley, both Cobb and Shingo needed a win or at least a draw. A loss meant elimination barring some sort of crazy, huge tiebreaker math going on at the end. This was a match of power versus power with some agile moves thrown in every once in a while for added excitement. Shingo wanted to use his power to slam Cobb right from the start, but Cobb's size was too much for Shingo to handle this early in the match. So Shingo went low and attacked Cobb's legs. That worked, and Shingo was in control for a good part of the first half of the match. Cobb had one good burst of offense in this segment, but Cobb ended with a standing moonsault that added to the pain in his knees that Shingo had started earlier, so Shingo quickly took control back. 
As Shingo wore Cobb down, Shingo was able to start hitting some of his slams. Shingo surged with Noshigami and a pumping bomber running Lariat, but an attempt at a flying head scissors ended with Cobb powerbombing Shingo down onto the mat. Cobb's offense accumulated to the point where Shingo collapsed while rebounding off the ropes. That collapse saved Shingo from a power slam though, and Shingo finally started hitting some of his bigger moves, including Made in Japan. Cobb survived though, and Cobb would hit a few more big moves, ending with the tour of the islands and the pinfall victory. So Cobb moved up to a three-way tie for second and kept his hopes alive for another round while Shingo was pretty much eliminated. This was another moment where I was happy and sad. Shingo's one of my favorites, so I was sad to see him be the first eliminated from B-Block, but I was also happy to see Cobb start building up some wins after a slow start. I mean, at least I got to see a really good match out of it, so that was very good. The second match on Night 12 was huge. It was John Moxley versus Toru Yano, and there was a lot on the line. Yano came into the match with 4 points, and Moxley was undefeated with 10 points. If Moxley won, then he'd, el- then he'd eliminate not just Yano, but anyone else who left Night 12 with only 4 points. If Yano won, that meant hope for a lot of guys. During their tag preview match during Night 11, Yano had offered a DVD to John Moxley for purchase. Moxley seemed interested, so he sent Shota Umino out of the ring to borrow 5,000 yen from the ring announcer Kimihiko Ozaki. Moxley paid with Ozaki's money, but of course that was all a distraction and Yano ended up leaving with the DVD anyway after the match. During their tournament match on night 12, Yano again offered a DVD to Moxley. But to make up for the previous night, Yano was also offering a tidy sum of 10,000 yen along with the DVD. Moxley wanted no part of the shenanigans, and he kicked the DVD and the money out of Yano's hands. After some running around, the two men ended up at ringside where Yano tried to tape Moxley's legs together. He failed, and Moxley taped Yano to the barricade instead. After some struggling, Yano escaped and made it back into the ring, but the taping was not done for the night. A little later, the fight went back out to the floor, where Moxley used a table to slam Yano's head a few times. Yano got Moxley down though, and with Shota Umino close at Moxley's side, Yano taped Moxley and Umino's legs together. Yano ran back to the ring, but Moxley and Umino failed to win their three-legged race back to the ring before the referee got to 20. So John Moxley, after winning the US title in his first New Japan match, and remaining undefeated ever since, lost his first match in New Japan to Toru Yano because of some athletic tape. It was great. I was really happy to see this. The match was fun, and having Moxley lose here opens up a lot more possibilities than having him go into the final three rounds still undefeated. Now there's hope for a lot more guys, and the final few rounds are going to be a lot more interesting. And you know, this loss doesn't really affect Moxley's standing in New Japan either. This wasn't really a fight, so there's no shame in losing to Toriano. The third B-block match of the night was, as all matches were, very important. It was Tetsuya Naito versus Juice Robinson. Naito went into this match with 4 points and faced elimination with a loss, and Juice went into the match with 6 points. Juice would not be eliminated from the tournament with a loss. Really, he'd still be in better position than most people in the chase for Moxley, but a loss would require more help from other people. The match started with Juice trying to take a page out of Naito's book. Juice usually comes to the ring wearing a lot of stuff, So just like Naito has done to people throughout the tournament, Juice took his sweet time removing all of his entrance gear. Juice slowly removed his hat and made sure a young lion was at ringside to take it from his hands. Then he removed his glasses, he polished them, he folded them up, and then he asked for another young lion to take them. 
Then as he was removing his jacket, you could see Naito actually speed up, taking off the rest of his own ring entrance gear, and Juice then folded up his jacket very carefully as Naito and Red Shoes asked for Juice to speed up. Then Juice removed his t-shirt to reveal another identical t-shirt underneath the one he was wearing. Juice laughed about it, then he removed that t-shirt to reveal a third t-shirt. Naito was just staring at Juice at this point, and when Juice pulled up his third and final shirt, Naito attacked. I think Naito might have remembered his loss to Yano with his own shirt pulled up over his head, because Juice got a beating while being blinded by his own attempts at mind games. Even though Juice's mind games were admirable and worked a little, Naito is a master of mind games. Naito mocked Juice's fist pumps constantly throughout the match, and Naito spitting on Juice got the flamboyant one quite angry on a few different occasions. Juice's anger caused him to pummel Naito at times, but it also made Juice let his guard down. Naito used that advantage to attack Juice's neck throughout much of this match. Juice would build up under Naito's dominance, but Naito would just have to hit a neckbreaker or something similar to stop Juice's momentum cold. Juice is nothing if not persistent though, and a huge burst of powerful offense late in the match had Juice building up for a big finish. Naito can take a beating though, and he built up to his own big finish with a string of extremely powerful moves. I thought the match was over after Naito hit Destino, but Juice kicked out. Juice hit a gut buster, a punch, and a lariat, but that wasn't enough, and Naito managed to hit a second Destino to claim a third victory in the tournament. This was a really great match for multiple reasons. For one, I loved how Juice attempted to throw Naito off, but by doing Naito's own thing back at him, Naito was able to just shrug it off and annoy Juice in other ways. Naito always seems to get people angry, no matter how hard they try to stay calm, but Naito is pretty much always calm. So the mind games were great, but the way the match built up was just as good. Naito calmly attacked Juice early in the match, but when Juice started getting more dangerous towards the end, Naito picked up the intensity in parallel, then he would just smile and mock Juice again once he was back in control. Naito was just so fun to watch if you're a fan of his, which I am, but I imagine he must be infuriating if you don't like him, and knowing that makes him even more fun to watch. The next to last B-Block match during Night 12, like the first match of the night, was a fight to get off the bottom of the block. It was Tai Chi with the lovely Miho Abe and Yoshinobu Kanemaru versus Jay White with the devious Gato. Both men had four points going into the match, and with Moxley's loss earlier in the night, that meant a loss wouldn't necessarily knock Jay White out, but since Tai Chi had already lost to Moxley, a loss for Tai Chi would require some crazy tie-breaking math that I'm not sure is even possible at this point. So yeah, a loss would eliminate Tai Chi. Jay White and Tai Chi both have their own style of shenanigans that they've done throughout the tournament, but this match started with both men practically mirroring each other. They both rolled out of the ring right after the opening bell. They were trying to get their opponent to follow them so they could use any of the three other people at ringside as a distraction, but neither Tai Chi nor White would cooperate. Eventually, Kanemaru and Gato did distract White and Tai Chi respectively at the same time, but Kanemaru and Gato ended up backing into each other and distracting themselves, so it was another stalemate. White and Tai Chi just started brawling on their own, and that's when the fight finally got started. Back in the ring, Tai Chi started to land some hard kicks, so White went for Tai Chi's eyes. And that was a theme throughout the match. Tai Chi started to rely more on actual wrestling, with a little cheating, while White started to rely more on cheating and underhanded tactics with a little wrestling. Anytime Tai Chi built up momentum, White would take the dirty way out. I think it frustrated Tai Chi that he wasn't the dirtiest player in this match. Really though, I think Gato might have been the dirtiest player. As Tai Chi was getting some moves on White, Gato grabbed Miho Abe by the hair and dragged her over to the entrance ramp where Tai Chi could see her. 
Tai Chi rushed out to free Miho, so White took advantage of the situation and attacked while Gato shoved Miho to the ground. That turned the momentum of the match clearly into White's favor, and it turned the crowd solidly against Jay White. There was a lot more cheating as the match neared its conclusion, and Kanemaru got a lot more involved later in the match. Kanemaru helped with one of the closest near falls in the match when he spit whiskey into Jay White's eyes, which allowed Taichi to hit his Axe Bomber Lariat and a Last Ride Powerbomb, but White kicked out. White was also looking for Blade Runner with every exchange at this point, and he finally hit it to get his third win in a row. So Taichi is eliminated, and White is finally in a pretty good spot despite how terrible he started the G1. White faces John Moxley in the next round, and that match is going to have huge implications. I was really pulling for Tai Chi in this match. I think that's not just a result of really enjoying all of Tai Chi's matches lately, but it's also because Jay White is a really good Weasley bad guy. This match was really fun, and it was increasingly tense. Every time I see Jay White start trying to hit Blade Runner, I get nervous. And the final B-block match during Night 12 was Hiroki Goto versus Tomohiro Ishii. Ishii headed into the match in a five-way tie for second with six points, while Goto came in with only two points less, but even though there were only two points separating them, to me it felt like Ishii was having a much better tournament than Goto. That would sort of change by the end of the match. Knowing how both Goto and Ishii wrestle, I think everyone knew this was going to be a hard-hitting affair. It definitely was that, and it was definitely fun. Both men are part of the Chaos faction, but neither of them had any qualms about absolutely blasting the other man with strike after strike. The match started with both men slamming into each other with a series of shoulder blocks. Ishii eventually went down after a while, but then Ishii knocked Goto down with a series of chops. These back and forth sequences would continue for most of the match with both men trading moves until one went down, then they trade a different move until the other man went down. Sustained momentum was hard to come by until late in the match. Ishii was the first man to really string together a long sequence of powerful moves to put Goto down and get a near fall, but Goto responded by stringing together an even longer series of moves. Goto had been going after Ishii's neck often throughout the match, and Goto started his final push with a sleeper hold that nearly had Ishii passed out. Goto then picked Ishii up and hit an Ushiguroshi and hit GTR among other moves to finally put Ishii down on the mat for a 3 count. While I think there were matches earlier in the night that I enjoyed more, this main event match was very entertaining. It was a straightforward, strong style match with two guys who hit really, really hard. It was like watching two men try to chop down a tree with a series of elbows and lariats. It was a lot of fun, and it was a good main event for round 6. And with that, Ishii remained in a tie for second place, four points behind block leader John Moxley, and Goto jumped up to join Ishii in that seven-way tie. As Rocky Romero said as the show was ending, night 12 was a night of spoilers. The night started with two men in second and seven men in a tie for last, but the night ended with two men at the bottom and seven men tied for second. Moxley still sits at the top of the block, but he is no further ahead than he was at the start of the night. Moxley has 10 points to lead the block. Goto, White, Cobb, Juice, Naito, Ishii, and Yano all have 6 points, and only Shingo and Taichi remain at the bottom with 4. I suppose technically Shingo and Taichi aren't eliminated, but like I said earlier, there would have to be some crazy tiebreaker math involved for them to stand a chance. At best now, they can only tie Moxley, but everyone else can pass Moxley if they get really good and get three rounds of help. Over in A block, Okada leads and is in danger from fewer men than Moxley since half of A block has already been eliminated, but the men still chasing Okada are just as dangerous as anyone in B block. Archer, Osprey, Saber, Sonata, and Fale are all out. None of them can catch up to Okada's perfect 12 points. 
Evil has six points, and he can only tie Okada if everything goes exactly right for him. And Kenta, Tanahashi, and Ibushi are all four points behind Okada, with eight points each. Out of the three men in second place, Ibushi has the best chance of overcoming Okada, since Okada has already beaten Kenta and Tanahashi. Ibushi must beat Okada during the final night of A-Block matches if he wants to win, but Ibushi's match in hand puts him in a better spot than Kenta and Tanahashi, who have to pretty much hope for a meltdown from the IWGP champ in the last three rounds. So at the end of round six, my hopeful picks of Ibushi and Naito might still happen. I was getting down about their chances earlier in the tournament, but Ibushi is in the best spot behind the leader of A Block, and Naito's chances are still more of a long shot, but he still has as good of a chance as a lot of guys in B Block. My other picks of Goto and Kenta might still happen as well. Goto still has a match with Moxley coming up, so that could propel Goto to the top if other things also go his way. I would say Goto has momentum now, but it's difficult to predict things like that in the G1, at least for me it is. The only thing that I really feel sure about is that the Okada vs Ibushi match during the final night of A Block action will determine the winner of A Block, and the Juice Robinson vs John Moxley match during the final night of B Block competition will determine the B Block winner. Other than that, I really don't know what's going to happen. But it will be fun finding out, and you can find out with me as I continue with more of these mini-sodes which you can find on cnjradio.com, the home of the Wrestling House Show, and the home of the family of CNJ Radio Podcast. Check us out on Facebook and interact on Twitter, at House Show, and let us know your favorite match from the G1 so far. I'm still trying to decide myself, but in round 6, I really enjoyed Sabre vs. Osprey, Cobb vs. Takagi, and Juice Robinson vs. Tetsuya Naito. Will all of those be in my top 10 list at the end of the tournament? I don't know, but you'll be able to find out on my Best of the G1 Climax 29 mini-sode, which you'll be able to find on cnjradio.com. And if you sign up for njpwworld.com right now, you'll be able to watch every single one of those matches. So go do that, then come back here as I talk about more wrestling on the Wrestling House Show. Talk to you later. Bye. been a remarkable tournament for Lance Archer. He's really opened up a lot of eyes. Imagine this, though. Hold on, Kevin. If he beats Zack Sabre Jr., he could be one of the men in line for that British heavyweight championship. Oh, and don't you think Lance Archer knows that? You know, soccer. Yes. That little vegan's going to find out what meat eaters really do. I'm going to chew him up, swallow him, and I'm going to take a dump in the middle of the ring, and it's going to be Zack laying there, smelling like a big pile of crap. All right, that's a... Descriptive image I will not soon get out of my mind.